Hello and welcome to the Veer Vulnerabilis Veer podcast. I'm Adam Glinsky. I'm Albert Imperato. Where we help men communicate and build empathy. All right, Albert, happy new year. We are back at this uh, for, for this year right now. And uh, it's a new year. It's been a, a crazy holiday season and then some. And just want to check in with you, see what's going on in Upstate. Um, well, I tell you, I mean, my first, uh, my first trip of the year already, I went down to Louisville, which was uh, amazing because I landed in a snowstorm and uh, didn't look very, it looked a little scary, like we weren't going to make it, but we made it. And uh, yeah, it was, it was an amazing weekend. I heard some great music. I heard a world premiere of this crazy new piano concerto, supposedly the, like the most difficult piano concerto ever written. And the audience loved it and went nuts and everything was great. And then I got home. And I got a text from someone I spent the weekend with. Um, I have COVID, and so yeah. I, I had to go into the into the uh, the man the uh, voluntary isolation at home, sleeping the, in the guest bedroom. And I mean that was that was horrible. But um, yeah, I kept self testing, and they all came up negative. So I never went out and got a PCR test. But whatever, just everybody's sick. So that's kind of like the theme. Like you talk to everybody. And everybody has COVID. It's just like, uh, I don't know. I'm not quite really sure the meaning of it, but that's what's going on right now. People are contending with COVID. Yeah. Uh, Omicron got me too. Uh, I was, I got super sick over like, you know, the the New Year time on there. So I feel you, man. And plus it's, it's kind of scary getting that text. Uh, oh, hey, you know, I just popped positive for it. And you're just like, all right, all right, here I go. And then, you know, you got to let everyone know and, do all those things. So I'm glad uh, you came away on the negative side. It's uh, it's not easy getting through that. I was like doing the whole gasping for breath. Uh, I went out on a hike and I was oh, just like, seriously. <gasps> yeah. And I was like, I am winded. I am absolutely winded. And I'm like, I'm like a mile into this walk. Um, and then, you know, lo and behold, <laughs> guess what? So oh, it, dude, wasn't, so it wasn't really like the roughest sickness I've ever been. It was just, you know, you're tired, you're drained out, you know, sometimes it's, it's hard to breathe. Um, but other than that, you know, it's good. I've since tested negative, so I'm, I'm good to go now. And things are kind of getting back to normal, uh, with, with my life, but yeah, you know, the, uh, the old, uh, COVID is, is still, still around. <laughs> yeah. I mean, we'll, let's just say our prayer out there into the ether that, um, where this bad surge will pass and the spring will come and we'll all be looking back saying, Oh, we did it. We survived this mess. Who knows? I mean, we, we yeah. none of us know. That's that's kind of a, a theme of life that we just got to get used to. Whatever's happened before, it only tells us so much about what's going to happen next. And we just got to kind of go along with it. And uh, that's actually sort of a theme of a couple of the texts that I had back and forth with Ali, one of our uh, two guests today, um, the, the folks behind uh, whiskey leatherworks who, uh, we haven't talked to in a while. They were on the, on the show, I think once or twice before, probably possibly twice. Was it just once, twice? Anyway, they're lovely people. Uh, they, they had a big, um, Allie and Danny, um, had a big, a big life change. And I was just so surprised because, um, I just think of them like this Montana couple and suddenly they're in Maine. And I was just thinking, Hey, that's a topic for conversation given that I still live in the same apartment in New York since 1986 and I've not moved since. So uh, yeah, I'm always amazed when people pick up and move because I think it's like a moment. So I'm, hopefully we'll, we'll learn what they learned from that moment, why they did it and what they're, what they're experiencing and what they're looking forward to. Yeah. It's uh, it's wild. I've moved quite a bit uh, in my time and there's always, a lot of you know emotions. There's a lot of reasons. There's a lot of expectations. There's a lot of wants. So uh, I'm I'm curious to to hear that. I'll give them a, a very brief introduction, and then we'll uh, go ahead and bring them on. Ali and Dan Ernest are the owners of Whiskey Leatherworks, which was founded in 2016. They have two daughters, ages 14 and 16, and Ali and Dan have also just recently uh, relocated from Missoula, Montana, to Kennebunk, Maine. Well, uh, you've been on twice, so I'm sure our, our fans uh, know you quite well, but welcome to the show again. It's, it's great to have you on here. It's on. Of course. Thank you. Yeah, I feel bad because Allie and I used to just be in like everyday contact and then suddenly we weren't. And I didn't take it like personally. I wasn't like, oh, Allie doesn't like me anymore. But it's just like one of the weirdnesses of life is that 
you know, they're like characters in sitcoms. People come in and out of our lives. Sometimes they're in every episode and then sometimes they're, they're on a special episode and sometimes you're wondering, oh no, what happened to that character? So I guess you were busy. I mean, obviously you run a small business yourselves, so you're busy people and you have two daughters, but what was going on there, Ali? Were, were you particularly busy? Was this all a buildup to making your move? Absolutely. Um, we, we, I think the last time we probably connected was maybe it was last, last winter, last spring, something in there. Maybe it was the, the, the prior summer, but we made this kind of contract with ourselves, which was one of our daughters late last winter. Uh, one of our daughters was going to be graduating out of eighth grade and into the high school system. And Dan and I kind of started doing some digging and, and looking for schools that specialize with specialize in dyslexia. Um, I personally am dyslexic and I pass that gift on to one of our daughters. And as we were contemplating the next school year and just how the little bit of um, online schooling that she had done had affected her, we decided to <clears throat> look for institutions around the country that would be able to um, pick up on what her challenges were and help her through these high school years, which is essentially how I got through high school with dyslexia. So I really went offline in terms of any other contact with anything going on in my life and focused a lot of our efforts on that. And we found a phenomenal school in New England. We went through an application process and then Dan and I kind of made this, made this deal with each other that if everything worked out, and she got in that we would pull up our stakes and move across the country because our our daughter said she'd be open to the concept of boarding school, which is such a huge concept, but she said we had to be within driving distance. <clears throat> so we said, well, if you're going to be brave enough to try it and you don't have to succeed, but if you're going to be brave enough to try it, we'll be brave enough to move across the country to be there with you while you try it. And if it fails, don't worry, we're going to be right there and we'll figure something else out. So that was probably, and then, and then that all tumbled into an acceptance and then into a massive move and then into setting up our shop. And so, yeah, that's, that's where I've been. Wow. Yeah. It, it, yeah. Moving the, uh, moving the house and moving the business and it was uh, quite a challenge. So it was, a. Uh, a multi-month process to say the least. And when did you actually uh, arrive? It, you, she was able to start the school year then at the school this, this fall, right? This past fall. Yes. So she, uh, she started this pad. It was the end of August, first part of September, uh, September. We uh, drove her down uh, along with all of her things that she needed and uh, helped her move into her dorm room. And yeah, it was, I was an emotional wreck. <laughs> I was, I was, I was, oh my goodness. I was uh, just weeping the whole time. And then, you know, I just, I didn't want to like let her see like dad's sadness or, um, but you know, I did want her to let her know that she's going to be really missed. And I, yeah, I was just trying to, you know, make it more about her and her experience and not so much myself. So, uh, that it, yeah, it was probably one of the most emotional times in my life of seeing her kind of um, you know, being dropped off at school and, you know, we're no longer, you know, there with her every single day. And uh, yeah, it was, for me, it was a, it was a big transition as well as Allie and Margo too. So. Was that also uh, heightened by, you know, high school, a lot of high school kids are, are going to school from home. Boarding school is a little different. So had, had you kind of not really thought of the idea that she might be in boarding school? So it was like, like an awakening to you of, oh my God, this is happening sooner than I thought, having a kid in high school who's not living at home. Yeah. I so I had it, I had, I'd say, the vision a little more mapped out in my brain because of my own experience with dyslexia, growing up in Connecticut, getting some really intense services, and then going on to boarding school myself succeeding, being on the dean's list, getting into the college of my choice. So I think in the like back of my mind, 
maybe quietly and unspoken, I kind of thought like if her dyslexia is as bad as is, is severe, not bad, it's not bad. It's just gradations of severity. Um, if it was as severe as mine that I'd like her to explore that pathway because it really empowered me. So I think for me, it just kind of bubbled up like, okay, here we go. And um, for Dan, it was a little bit like, wait, what? Yeah. It, it, you know, it was, you know, we kind of spent the, the middle of the summer when we moved, kind of moved here and started setting up the house and uh, getting her room situated. And then all of a sudden starting to pack up, you know, a, a big portion of the room and putting it in the back of the car and, you know, driving her down. That was, it was like one transition after the other, after the other. And, you know, we're slowly now starting to get into uh, more of a, a routine and more of a, a new normal. So, Allie, you grew up in Connecticut. Um, Danny, did you have any, like, New England experience, or is this, like, the first time you were living in that area? Well, so Allie's originally from Connecticut and obviously upstate New York in the Finger Lakes area. So when she and I married in uh, – we married in 2000, we, you know, made several trips back north from Atlanta to uh, you know, upstate New York and Connecticut and Vermont and New Hampshire. So I had been exposed to kind of, like, the northeast – through trips from Atlanta, but yeah, it was uh, always such a beautiful place. And we, you know, had pretty much the entire Northeast opened up to us. So we settled on uh, Kennebunk, Maine. Wow. Atlantic to Kennebunk. I mean, that's a real big different uh, winter experience. I just can't even imagine coming from Atlanta and then going to Maine for the winter. Yeah. It's drastically different to say the least. You know, my friends down in Atlanta are like, oh my God, it's all the way down to the 40s. I'm like, it's minus six right now in the Hudson Valley. I hate it. Wow. So that that really was uh, quite a, a, a monumental series of months of, of changes and things that you did. And, and clearly you had made it. I mean, the way that you framed that to your daughter was just so, was so powerful. You, you laid it all out. Like, here's why we're doing it. And you're not feeling all the pressure because we're going to be there for you. And if it doesn't work out, we'll figure it out. Um, did you have to sort of think it through and, and think, Hey, how are we going to discuss this? Or was this just sort of the natural, just naturally just came out of you? Like, this is how we talk to our kids. And we're always, you're kind of always looking to make them feel comfortable with what we're discussing. Yeah. I think we, <clears throat> I had the benefit kind of a unique benefit. I think of having, um, insight as to what it feels like growing up as a dyslexic. And um, as a result, I feel like I've been able to relate with Margot about things that perhaps if I hadn't, I might be talking down to or like trying to figure out. But because I went through it and I had a lot of help, it was a little easier, I think, for me to lay out a menu of options. Like, I think this is the best plan is to try this. And, you know, if you trust me with it, like, We'll do everything we can. If it doesn't work, don't worry about it. So I think I fall back on my own life experience as like my main teacher as to how to navigate it. Can I ask a bit of an ignorant question? Is dyslexia a condition that you train to sort of write the situation or is it more that you learn to work around the, the issue that's causing the dyslexia? It's such a great question. Um, I say, I guess I would say my my response is it's a little bit of both. The way in which I was able to uh, learn to go through the process of actually learning how to read, learning how to take notes, learning how to pay attention in class was a combination of events. But one of the most powerful tools was learning how to use symbols instead of words when I was note taking. <clears throat> so it created a connection point there where the letters themselves didn't necessarily hit a mark with me, but if I could use a symbol instead of a word, um, like a, for instance, almost within shorthand, using a triangle instead of the word change or therefore a series of three dots. So I, I had personally a dictionary of maybe a hundred symbols that uh, were given to me by the, the teacher who helped piece it together for me. And I still, once I learned those and used them for about five to 10 years, eventually the hardwiring then happened on its own of how to, how to read and how to, how to note take, how to listen. So 
it's a bit of a process, but there's like a connection point through symbology is, is how I learned. And so Margot had gone to just a regular public school up through junior high school? No, we were actually incredibly fortunate. There was a little school in Missoula, Montana called Sussex. Both our girls went there for 10 years. Um, that school is based on a Danish model of experiential learning. And we actually really appreciated that school because there were no grades at that school. The concept within that particular model was to teach your children to love learning through experiential learning. And then by the time they're ready to launch, they have all the skill set to learn. So it's more of a learning to learn, which is a little bit of an experiment, but both of our girls have just flourished now in their high school years. So she had, I think, 15 kids per grade for all 10 years of her school <clears throat> until the end of eighth grade. Yeah. And it's, yeah, it's really small classes and, you know, a lot of parental uh, involvement too. So either myself or Allie would be on campus, you know, either dropping off or helping out with uh, one of the class field trips or uh, something like that. But, you know, you were always connected to the school through your, ki uh, through your kids and also through just personal relationships with the teachers that you knew and the staff members that you, knew, that you were friends with. And uh, it was definitely a, a small community of, of students and parents and teachers and faculty and staff. And how, your other daughter, what was her response to the idea that you guys would be moving? So our other daughter, <clears throat> she too, she launched to boarding school the prior year. She had, um, we were still in Montana and our eldest daughter, Ella, wanted to be a marine biologist or wants to be a marine biologist. And we found a school in Monterey, California that specializes in women in STEM, girls in STEM. And so I said, you know, if you can, if you can work toward a scholarship, then um, we'll, we'll support you on this. And she worked really hard and um, she got into that school. So Ella had launched to boarding school year before the move itself, I think has been, you know, a little bit, a little bit different in the way it's disrupted both of them because they've both been transitioning. Ella's been in a boarding school and Margo's now transitioning to boarding school. It's a little hard to mourn the loss of your hometown from the out of pocket experience of being in boarding school. So we're kind of right now trying to like figure out how to unpack that piece and like, how do we walk through that? Well, first of all, the incredible coolness of going to, to boarding school in Monterey to study biology, marine biology. I mean, that just sounds so cool that it would, it would just dwarf any concerns you might have about anything else. I had such a moving experience going to Monterey because I was a, always a big John Steinbeck fan. And I just like there's that, that little plaque on the, on the ground that uh, with, with the, the face of John Steinbeck and his dates there and whatever. And, you know, so many of the stories are set in that area. I went to school out there. I went to Stanford and I didn't kind of really didn't discover Monterey until a couple of years uh, later. And uh, so anyway, I have, I'm getting like flashes of, wow, that was a very powerful trip last time I was there. So good, good for her. I mean, my God already in high school to already be motivated by an interest in something like that. So we'll be, we'll be waiting to see her on her own uh, Netflix, uh, you know, octopus show or whatever it is. Her, her, her. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> wow. And and how is Margot doing in the school? Is she loving the new school? So she has been loving the new school. She has, I think for the first time in her life, she's been surrounded by the majority of the kids have dyslexia and she is grades wise. So this is the first time she's ever had grades. She's thrived. Like she's, she's getting straight A's, which is I don't, no pressure, Margo, if you hear this, like in a month, you can tank and mom doesn't mind, but, but she's done really, really well. So that's been, it's been fun to watch that. She has like excitedly sent tests home through her text to me with A and then showing how she's putting together sentence structures and like the amount of confidence that now she's finding in reading, which reading is so foundational. Um, and if you kind of, if that ship sails where you don't connect reading, it, it, life gets exponentially harder. And so that's really the piece for, for Margo that I was hoping would connect is that reading piece. And I would say we're seeing her confidence increase and then her 
socially she's she's surrounded by other kids that all speak the same nondescript language of dyslexia so it's no longer like something she has to pretend doesn't really exist yeah for me it's like seeing seeing that that boost in self-confidence and self-esteem and just really uh just it's it's tangible it's noticeable when you when you see her and after a period of time and having her back home it's she's a different child and it's i i credit the school for kind of helping foster you know something that was already you know always inside of her but it was not really uh as noticeable as it has been lately how far is the school away from your home Three hours and 32 minutes, I think, door to door. I think that was the least amount of time it's taken us this far to get there. That's nice, though. It's like a little bit of distance, so you can have the distance, but, you know, you can always jump in the car and get there in in three hours. Yeah. Yep. Wow. And and the place where you're living, I mean, did you guys get lucky and find a house immediately that you fell in love with and could do your work at? How How did that work out? It was a lot of nights on Zillow, like <laughs> waiting and looking, looking, looking and seeing something pop up and you know, trying to be the first person to make an offer on a house. Uh, we, the house that we're in now, we ended up buying sight unseen, uh, really trusted our realtor to uh, do a little due diligence on the area and relying on what her feedback was. And uh, I think she knocked it out of the park. We have a great place. It's kind of halfway between Kenny Bunk and Kenny Bunkport. Uh, we're about a mile from uh, Kenny Bunkport and another probably half mile to the beach. So it's, um, it's been really nice. Like in the mornings we try to get out, walk the dogs on the beach and let them run around and play. And, uh, yeah, I, I'm super happy with our location that we found. Wow. And, and you are actually doing the work from your home or you have a separate place where you're doing whiskey with leather work, leather works. Yeah. So we have a, an actual shop that, you know, we're trying to open up a more of a permanent retail spot so it'd be like half retail half production How cool. down in what's called the uh, the lower village of of kenny bunk just right across the bridge from kenny bunk port so it's a really small little community and you know there are other uh, artisans there uh, that have studios or galleries and it's a great it's a great community very welcoming and we've you know trying to open up a retail spot uh but we're getting around we're getting we're getting around to that as time allows I haven't been up to Maine in ages. So if you guys have a, a shop set up, I am so coming up to Maine this summer for a visit. Oh, we'd love to see you guys. It's funny. I have this little like daydream. Like sometimes I'll be on Instagram and I remember like, you know, pulling my head up from work and I'm like, but there's going to be a day that Albert just walks through the door. I do. I think about this. I'm serious. I'm definitely going to do that. I, I'm so overdue for like, you know, we get in our little, uh, our little space. I mean, I love the Hudson Valley, but I mean, Maine is a whole different, a whole different world. Uh, there's some famous Kennebunkport and Kennebunk, Kennebunk people. Like there's one famous family, one, you know, kind of was a president. One was like the son who was a president and that's like their region. I heard rumors. You may have bumped into one of them. Can, can you tell us that quickly? <laughs> Go for it, Ali. Yeah. So that was, um, it was the morning that, I had driven across country with my two daughters. My sister met me halfway when we were driving across country. She flew out to Chicago. So I, I drove with my two daughters and a friend to Chicago. My friend turned back to Montana. And then my sister, Diane, actually flew out to Chicago and finished the journey with my daughters and I. So I was never alone, which was such a huge blessing. And I was just walking the dogs. There are a few other people on the beach. It was really mild morning. Um, I was kind of making my way toward the end of the beach where there's some of those beautiful black main rocks that you can kind of picture in photography with the, you know, kind of waves that come up, but it was a really mild morning. So it was really calm. And I had headed out to those rocks just to peek in the, you know, my first peek in the tide pools, you know, morning one with these dogs. And as I, uh, kind of collected myself after we'd been out on the rocks and the dogs and I started to head back down onto the sand. Um, and, uh, the beach was totally empty with the exception of a few, a few people, one of which was a larger man 
who started to walk, who was walking toward me. And I was kind of picking up dog poop bags. Like I wasn't really paying attention. And I had three dogs. So I had like, I kind of like imagined myself in my mind's eye looking like a Christmas tree of dog poop bags. I had a ton of them. Um, Sorry about that. I hope that's okay. So there was nothing gracious at all about my particular stance at that moment. So the this gentleman kind of walks right into my personal space. There's no no one else on the beach except for some folks behind him. He came right up into my face, looked me dead in the eye, and said, "Good morning." And I was a little taken aback, but I said, "You know, good morning," and I got my poop bags and started to continue on. And just as I was continuing on, over um over to my left hand side, I saw a fellow and he he kind of reached out in that executive way, maybe six, six to eight feet away, reached out in this kind of executive stance and threw his hand out and said, good morning. And I, and I turned and I said, good morning. And it, it was George W. Bush. <laughs> it was George W. Bush. And I, and I had literally, it was like a cartoon. My foot was in the air I, I froze completely, like <laughs> involuntary. I'm sure my face for the dog bags may have been swinging still, but I was frozen. He had a huge smile on, on his face. And then I looked behind him and there was a couple other people. Um, I'm sure his security detail and they kind of looked like they were trying not to laugh at me, but I could not <laughs> move. And one of them just shook his head up and down. Yes, that is who you think it is. And then I forced myself to keep walking with the biggest grin in the world on my face. And the, the funny thing is, is all politics aside, um, we've just done this huge move across country. My father passed in 2002. My father was a dyed-in-the-wool Reagan-era Republican. And with such a huge transition going on in my own life, like I always try to check in with my dad, you know, from the beyond, like, is this a good idea, dad, that I be here? And when George Bush smiled at me and like threw out his hand and said, good morning, I was like, dad, (laughs) thank God I didn't say it because I probably would have been arrested. But um, yeah, that was my funny first morning in Maine, first 24 hours in Maine. So it's kind of wild that, that the ex-president's on the beach early in the morning, but needs the Secret Service, even in Kennebunkport. Yeah, it, we've been out of, you know, we've been out a couple mornings. I remember distinctly one morning pulling up uh, to park the car along the, the sidewalk at the beach. And all of a sudden, two or three guys approach the car, you know, they have like coats on and, you know, earpieces in and I'm like, Oh my goodness. Like we haven't done anything wrong, but they are the security. We they are, rods out. It's yeah, we were, yeah, we were getting fishing rods out of the car. So um, they were, have you continued to go out. to the beach in the, in the winter? Cause win- winter main beach must be very intensely cold. But surprisingly, yes, we do. We try to go out every day and uh, it is cold, but the good thing about walking on the beach is there's no ice to worry about slipping on. Um, you know, and coming from Montana for almost 18 years, it, the winters here are not bad at all. I was anticipating like just severe cold and wind and uh, really kind of unbearable conditions. But honestly, it's been super mild, relatively. You know, relatively oh, so you, you were in Missoula for 18 years. Almost. Yeah. Oh, Wow. Do you miss it terribly? Is it like, do you wake up sometimes in the morning and be like, oh shit, we really miss Montana? Or are you kind of like, hey, that was our chapter there and now we're we're here? I think it's definitely a little bit of both. I mean, it's, I'd say it's, uh, it's the community in Missoula. Um, I love the East Coast, but um, I think the part that might be the hardest is, and I'm just trying to, I've just been trying to articulate my own mind's eye, like what's the difference between Montana and Maine? Because we actually are starting to get to this question asked of us a lot. And I think there's something about the headspace that you're granted in Montana. And I don't know if it's directly tied to the big sky or the lower population, but it just seems to be that we had, I personally felt like I had a little more headspace in Montana. So 
I think the challenge moving back to the East Coast, Maine is protected, I think, from a lot of chaos of like, but then when like, as soon as we pull into I-95, because we have a an exit off of I-95, it's like, you know, you're kind of right in that intense mix of people and uh, and movement. So I think we've been trying to like, I, you know, it's just a question I've been thinking about a lot. Yeah. I, that's a, a pretty, pretty big thing. And uh, <laughs> holy cow, the, the move across and, and all of the change there, but I definitely feel, uh, feel you on the traffic. And like, once you kind of like have your like peaceful, you know, beach morning, and then you're like, okay, now like traffic, now I'm going like 80 miles per hour. Like it's a, a very, very big uh, transition, especially uh, from a, a smaller part of uh, Missoula there. But I'm very, I'm very happy for you. And I'm glad to hear all these stories. I was cracking up <laughs> like the whole time there. Um, but I just, uh, I'm curious uh, about one thing that you said before uh, in Missoula was the, the Sussex school um, and that um, kind of like alternative education. And, and that's um, something that, that I've, you know, learned about a little bit more recently and thought it was a really great idea. Um, so I'd just like to, to ask you, like, do you think that kind of laid a, a different foundation, um, for your kids to, to learn and grow and especially with like the different kind of, uh, field trips and like being in nature and kind of like connecting, um, with the outside natural world. Do you think that gives a difference to, to children in, in the way, you know, education's kind of looked at? Uh, yeah, for me, I mean, I'm a product of, of, uh, public education and, I remember like sitting at your desk and you know, waiting until the next bell rings or the end of the day. Whereas at Sussex school, it was, you know, they have desk and they have like their little lockers and stuff, but it, it's so integrated with the other grades. Uh, one thing in particular that jumps out is they have a big and little program where an eighth grader kind of adopts like a kindergartner or first grader as, as they're little. And then to that, from that little, that, is they're big and they'll eat lunch together. They'll, you know, go on field trips together. It's just, and there's just such an integration amongst all the grades. Uh, and there's no fear, like when you're a little kid, like you're not like, Oh my goodness, this, the scary eighth graders or whatever it is. Um, but that to me, that's one of the, one of the really uh, things, the bigger things that jump out to me. And, and one of the benefits of that school is just mm. that, deep integration. And it teaches the older kids like responsibility, like this is my little, I, I've got to take care of this one person. And, um, you know, as our girls transition from littles to middle to middles to bigs and kind of seeing that, um, that role of, of being responsible for someone else is it, it's a tremendous uh, benefit of that school system. You know, it, it, that's such a great point. I'm so glad you brought that up, Dan. And, and then Adam, in terms of the, the curriculum of the school being um, experiential and integrated with nature, I think that that absolutely affects the, the trajectory of how your child develops. I mean, I think one of our daughters, Margo, even just the other day, I received a message from, from one of her teachers saying, you know, Margo's emotional maturity is, is phenomenal. And I kind of credit that to the fact that at her school, she never had to call a teacher by Mrs. or Mr. as always by a first name. So they knew their teachers as Christy and Daphne and Carmen and Jody. And, and there was something about, I felt like the dissolving of some hierarchy that maybe made emotional maturity, um, just, I, it, it affected the way that that she developed emotionally. And I mean, I think another contributing factor to like that overall emotional uh, growth has a lot to do with like being outside almost every, not every day, but there were- They multiple, were every day. Yeah, and it, but they would do like field trips once a week to go to like a sit spot to where it's outside down by, you know, one of the local rivers and they'd have a little a special spot that was there so they would go and sit and, um, do some of their homework or writing or reading or whatever it is meditating and meditating. Um, and also field trips, uh, to some of like national parks, like they will do a week long field trips to Yellowstone or to grand Tetons or glacier national park. And 
you know, it, it wasn't always sunny in 70 uh, during those field trips. And, you know, there's something to be said to like, oh, it was, we had some, a few days of some really terrible weather or, uh, and just kind of learning to enjoy where you are and what you're doing, regardless of the conditions and the people that you're around and working through problems or working through less than ideal uh, situations. I think that has contributed both, you know, I think that contributes a lot to like that emotional maturity. I'm having a little field trip flashback. Actually we did, I went to public school outside New York, our junior, junior and uh, regular high school um, junior middle school and, and high school in, outside the city. And we went to Sandy Hook, New Jersey for one of our field trips, had a great nature preserve. It was one of the great, uh, a huge amount of bird sanctuaries there. And uh, our earth sciences teacher's expertise apparently was in sort of wilderness survival and eating you know, things that you could eat on, you know, in nature. And, you know, I was, uh, I think this was my, maybe my, my last year of middle school. And uh, yeah, I was like, really like, you know, for a kid like me, I was not out in nature like that all that often. And it was so amazing. I was so psyched to be on the bus, but apparently he was uh, showing us uh, which berries to eat and not eat and ate the wrong ones. And the, the trip ended <laughs> with him in the hospital, getting his stomach pumped. <laughs> And I was like, well, that's why you don't eat that shit in nature. Like, <laughs> you go to a restaurant or you make it yourself. Anyway, so I, that was always my, that was like my, my go-to uh, m- memory of field trips is watching him turn a really weird color and then be taken off in an ambulance. We were all so traumatized. Um, talk about traumatized. When we think of empty nesters, we kind of think of what? Kids off at college. But you are you feeling empty nest ish um, with your fourteen and sixteen year old girl at boarding school? It's kind of kind of come a little ahead of time. And is is that phrase empty nester? Does it really mean anything? Oh God, yeah, <laughs> it is. It's nothing that you can prepare for. Um, I have a. <clears throat> One of our uh, cousins lives here in town and he actually kind of pulled me aside the other day. He's like, you got to stop asking Margo if she wants to come home. You do know that might impact her, right? Like it's, it's hard. It's, it's very, it's hard to, um, to have your kids go away. Uh, Like, you you know, you want to see it, test an environment and see if this is the right path. But like for those like parents, when you're sitting back at home, I would say this is the hardest thing I've ever done. Yeah. I mean, you're, you're always kind of wondering like, what's going on? How's their day going? Um, what are they up to? What are they going to do this weekend? Are they eating well? Are they sleeping, getting enough sleep? I mean, it's just a constant like cycle that you go through every single day. And, you know, you slowly learn to trust that you've prepared them and you can still, you know, trying to parent from so far away. It, it's, it's, it's difficult. I actually have on my on my phone I have this like alarm every night it's ridiculous and it's to remind both girls to put the retainers in. And now the friends that we have here hear it go off every night at night they're like you know for out to dinner like oh did you call the girls about the retainers it's like a phantom limb I'm like <laughs> it's all I've got you know this is my <laughs> way of parenting from afar. But the two of you work together and now you know now you have you don't have your daughters living at home. So you guys spend probably more time together than any couple in America (laughs) and you're still smiling and you still look really happy. So (laughs) what is going on here? Like, do you have like a secret room where you go and scream at the top of your lungs? What's going on? Tell us a little bit about the the dynamics of being together all day long, basically. Oh, it's definitely a trend. Like there was definitely a period where there's a little turbulence on the plane. (laughs) 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 <laughs> but uh yeah it's it you know i to be completely honest yeah there were uh, there was a transition phase from when you were here our summer at uh, this summer is a family of four and then uh i think ella went off first we flew and she flew back to california then dropped margo off and it's like that car ride coming back home we're like looking at each other like okay hello and um you know and then 
being together at home and the house is empty and then going to the shop together. And it, yeah, it's, it took a little time to learn to live in a house without the girls and then being together in the house and then going to the shop, being in the shop all day together and then coming back here. Um, yeah, it, it's, was there a little turbulence, but we're now still, it's like, yeah, yeah occasionally. I'd say we're still bump, working but, it out. Yeah. But it's for the most part, it's, it's, it's a lot of fun. I mean, you have to love what you're doing and uh, love where you are in order to be, uh, to kind of be in that mindset of um, oneness, I guess. Well, yeah. And I see, I think the other thing, I have a friend here in Kennebunk who's a therapist. She's a career counselor and a therapist. Her name is Anoush Yosefian Hansen. And I'm really fortunate, and Danny and I are really fortunate. Anoush and I, lived in Kenya together, uh, um, like back in a past life as students at St. Lawrence University. <clears throat> and Anoush now has a um, counseling group that specifically works on work-life balance. Um, I think her website is worklifebalance.com. So we recently had um, Anoush come in and do a work-life balance with both Danny and I, she has these card sorts. And, and I think we're one of her most extreme cases because it's very difficult to dissect the two. This has just been within the last couple of months. We then, it was so impressive that we asked her to come in and do the work-life balance card sort for our employees. Um, but I think that that's been a little helpful as we've been trying to pull apart personal and um, occupational when those two lines bleed. And we really have to be incredibly intentional about trying to create a buffer or a space from where one, one ends and the other begins, like sneaking over to dinner somewhere and saying like, you know, rule number one, we don't talk about work. And, and that usually lasts like maybe 10 minutes. Like if we're lucky, we can get by with 10 minutes, but then we try to pull each other back on track. And um, it's, it's not, yeah, it's not a simple process. We have to be really intentional. Yeah. With that, the, with that work-life balance uh, kind of program, it really helps you to see like, essentially you're taking a series of questions and you're putting them into different categories of, I have enough of this, I need more of this, or, you know, I'm, I'm okay with this. And it was so funny, like Allie took a picture of her results and I took a picture of my results and they were almost identical you know, as far as like what we need uh, more of in each of the different categories. And it, it's helped us to kind of prioritize like, you know what, every morning we need to be walking together, not talking about work. And at the end of the day, like shutting off at five o'clock or the, you know, around five o'clock and then trying to spend time by ourselves with those cooking or going to the grocery store, getting ingredients, coming back home um, or taking the dogs for another walk or just relaxing or just trying to not uh, trying to compartmentalize more uh, of work and not letting it bleed into other parts of your life. But it's been very insightful to help us kind of that balance, I guess. Well, I think it's really cool. I mean, you, you seem to just naturally have a really great balance in general. I mean, from my knowing you, you just seem to pair well together. To, I don't know how else to put it, but just the fact that you're open to the idea of, uh, you know, calling your friend and and talking about work balance, work life balance, and actually doing the exercises to just make sure and just, uh, you know, I think a lot of people they want to improve their situation, they want to do self exploration and, and figure stuff out, and then they're like, eh, maybe I shouldn't. Maybe they're too nervous, and you know, partially they're just a little too lazy. Um, you know, keeping motivated to to improve your life is is work. It's definitely it's definitely work. So I I really take my hat off to you guys for always seeming so open. You know, open to moving, open to exploring this new chapter of your life. I think that openness is. Definitely something that uh, is it marks, I think, a really successful adulthood when you're continuing to be open and have that kind of youthful, uh, youthful approach to um, to self to self exploration, self discovery. Um, anyway, Adam, did you want to uh, pop in there? Yeah, um, 
One one thing that was mentioned a few times uh, in our conversation was the word trust, uh, trusting in your daughter's autonomy and trusting in her ability to kind of get through things, uh, trusting in your own parenting skills, and also trusting in this process to kind of strengthen your, your marriage and your work-life balance. So it seems that uh, your relationship with trust has uh, shifted and changed and transformed in like the last year of this um you know, adventure that you're on. So just curious if you've kind of reflected on that or, you know, kind of thought about, you know, how, how is my relationship with trust and my family um, affecting me and affecting the people that I'm around? You want to field that one? Uh, yeah, well, yeah. Or, I mean, go ahead. Are, are you sure? Do you want to go forward, sweetie? But, but then you have to say something too. <laughs> Thanks, Adam. <laughs> all the softball, all the softballs have left the building. Yeah, that's a good one. <laughs> okay. Um, well, I think I, I, I think that it, that's. I think it's a really curious part of the conversation because we're at a part in the we're at a, a, an interesting chapter in the history of the world when trust is so. Um, it's enigmatic. Do I trust that if I go to the grocery store and I forgot to bring my mask that I, I will be okay? Like the molecular details of now, I feel like what I trust, like can I trust that my child can get across the country on an airplane, you know, without being infected with something? Like, yeah. And in a way I feel like what, Part of what we've done, at least to date, with our girls being in boarding school is pushing against fear. Um, I feel like I constantly have to rein my own fear in a little bit and trust that this is a chapter in time. And if they get sick, they'll get better. And if I'm not there, you know, we've given them enough and that they know how to access it or at least tell us that they can't access it and ask for help. So I, Adam, I think that like, you just, you hit the nail on the head is the, is that component regarding trust. And, and with Dan and I too, I know you've, you've, trust has been a part of what you've been contemplating recently too. Oh yeah. I mean, it's like every aspect of your personal life and business life here. There's so much trust involved that, um, you know, in the, now that I'm thinking, since your question, I'm like, oh my goodness, like trust is like such a huge part of our life and trusting that the girls are making good choices and they're eating healthy and they're choosing to go to bed on time and like trusting, you know, when work stuff comes up between myself and Allie, like trusting that she's got it, like she's going to take care of it. And, you know, it, there's, there's only so much bandwidth that each person has. And mm-hmm. beyond that bandwidth, you have to rely on trust and mm-hmm. kind of talk yourself uh, not, not to be so anxious about something. And, you know, I think that trust helps to buffer anxiety. And mm-hmm. there's just so much <clears throat> of that trust in, in my life personally, and having someone like Ali uh, as one of the most trustworthy per people I've ever met in my entire life. Mm. That definitely, you know, helps me. I'm normally a very anxious person, but you know, a lot of it, I, I, Allie is responsible for raising our, both, both of our girls for the most part and just the values that she's instilled in, instilled in them and um, teaching them, you know, a core set of values really helps me trust that, she's done a great job and it, it really reduces the anxiety that I have about, you know, the girls being away or when work issues come up. Um, yeah. Mm. It, yeah. I'm like dumbfounded right now. If you can't, if you can't tell. <laughs> no, no, those, that's great, great answers. And, and I do appreciate just the the conversation because I don't think there really is uh, a tried and true, like this is, this is the right, the right answer for anyone. It's, it's a combination. And like the, both of you said, it's also trust has something to do with your relationship with fear and your relationship with anxiety. And when we've been in a pandemic for two years and change, you know, it's like still going on and we're still having, you know, this, this ongoing relationship with everything. And, 
um, it's it's a daily daily practice to to really fortify yourself um, with with the good things and you know kind of know your tendencies with some of the other things that you don't really want to foster. So I you know I, I definitely knew it was uh, one of those uh, harder questions, but I, I certainly appreciate your answers. So thank you. I was very um, moved seeing the emotion in your face, Danny. Um, you, you like you know you look like the quintessential you know, regular guy, solid dude, you know, you just ha give, exude this kind of confident, uh, you know, uh, demeanor. And it's just so beautiful to see you so emotional explaining uh, that Ali was, was, it was so important to have her there. I mean, you even credit her with raising your daughters. I mean, that's quite a statement. I mean, you're basically saying you're, you're, Ali had a, you know, the biggest role she could have had in your life in a way was, was shaping the values of your daughters. And, you know, maybe you're not giving yourself enough credit. Maybe she would say the same where you're, the daughters got those values from, from Danny, just as much as they did from me. I don't know how it's not like it's gotta be a 50, 50 thing, but one of the other things besides the emotion in your face, that really moved me as you were talking about uh, trust. I realized actually though, another word came to my mind was faith. Um, and I, you know, I just realized, I think faith is sometimes thought of as sort of some, uh, you know, something without facts, something that's in like sort of intuitive and hopeful and, um, maybe even quixotic, maybe even a little, almost, almost, um, I don't know, unreal. But I, as you discuss what, tr what trust was, I actually was beginning to think that's actually what faith is actually all about is kind of, it's a. It's a, it grows actually out of trust. It's, it's you somehow, I, I felt like you were describing what faith really should be. Uh, it's really trusting that these good things that we learn, that we instill, that we share the values that we have, that those things have to give us a sense that we're, we're going to get a good result um, in, in our lives if we stick to those things that, you know, we trust to be good. I don't know. Maybe like it's like Buddhism with right action somehow. Anyway, I I, I don't know what your your definition of, of faith would be, but I wondered like how faith and trust do those words seem connected to you in some way? Does that seem like a uh, a connection that makes sense? Yeah, I mean, I to me it feels like faith is more of a is faith is built by trust. You know, trust is more of an immediate like in your immediate. Uh, headspace whereas you know after continuation of trust and you know that to me establishes faith um hmm. yeah it's that's it's an interesting thing for me hmm. that's that it i like the way that you said that by the way that's kind of that was a good summary of that and just to go full circle i mean one of the things ali that you and i were texting back and forth is is you know we are living in a time now where this pandemic's gone on now for two years and uh, any stress that people have that's extended over a period, you know, our bodies are used to sort of short term periods of stress. You know, we have a, we have a hurricane and the hurricane passes and, you know, whatever um, we have uh, an illness and it goes away. Hopefully uh, this pandemic's lasted for a while. And I think I'm beginning to feel just like you explained, Ali, that there's more talk about the the mental challenges that people are having right now. People are, I'm finding more friends calling me admitting, hey, I'm having a hard time right now. I've never had a problem with anxiety. I've never had a problem with depression. And I'm feeling this in a big way right now. Um, so you 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 know said to me in that text, Ali, like being destigmatizing that was something that you think that everybody was talking about you found that it was something people were, were discussing in your in your workspace i'm just curious um you know i i i did just think what you've done today just come in talking about the challenges you know even to, to discuss openly about about dyslexia i i just think right right there that's uh you know that's putting yourself on the line but i'm just wondering um you know is there a message you want to give out to to, to people about this topic yeah. Um, thank you so much, Alder. Uh, I, I, I do. I, um, it's funny. I, I was gra I grabbed, I grabbed a book to stick my coffee on earlier today after I sent that text to you. And I was like, I started to like, look at the title. I don't know if you know this, uh, Pat Conroy, 
the Prince of Tides. And I was kind of laughing that this was the book that I chose to put my coffee on, um, juxtaposed against the conversation of mental health, where it started and where it is today. Um, if, if anybody's not familiar with Pat Conroy, I would highly recommend him as an author. Um, and if you don't like reading or if you're dyslexic, you can watch the movie. Yeah, I saw is, the movie. I did not read the book. Barbara Streisand and it Nick Nolte. It's, it's like, a beautiful it's movie. A, Great movie, and there's a lot about masculine vulnerability actually in that movie. Um, but I feel like if there's one benefit to this this uh, present time that we live in right now, even if we wanted to live by that age-old adage, which is you know check your personal life at the door when you walk into your company, <clears throat> that's just not even an option anymore. Like number one, like the concept isn't really even human, but I think it's, I'm finding it a little bit liberating to be able to have emotional discussions in our office about how people's lives are going, like, you know, who's sick in your family and will you be able to make it home for the holidays? Are you afraid? You know, there, there's conversations that are coming up that you can't compartmentalize anymore. And, um, I think we're, we're trying to figure out a learning process as to how to integrate the two. We're very fortunate in that we have a, a small shop and we have, um, we're family owned, but I'm, I, I'm kind of enjoying this wild west integration of emotional reality into the workspace. Um, maybe some days it's heavier than others or more intense than others or more uncertain than others. Um, but mental health is a constant conversation. I would say it, it just peppers regardless of whether or not we want to be talking about it. Um, and, you know, I've had a therapist. Dan, do you feel comfortable if I say you've had a therapist? Oh, yeah, absolutely. <laughs> Dan has a therapist. You yeah. know, it, or, you know we're, I feel like now is such a wonderful time to dig deep and, and look at different philosophies and how to manage stress. Like, does the concept of illusion help when things are so incredibly overwhelming? Like how do we diffuse all of the news, all of that? And, and going back to that trust and faith piece, actually a thought that came up for me and Adam, again, like awesome question um, was, is this idea that things aren't always going to work out and what does the net look like? And I think I find myself asking that question now more than ever, whereas I think I used to kind of like my barometer for success was attainment of a goal. And now, like in the last two years, my barometer for success is like having nets in place that will hold when the things fall apart, not even if. So like, you know, instead of looking up at the mountaintop and, you know, or Dumbo in the feather where you're like, I can fly. Like, that's awesome. And then what happens when, you know, when you fall, like, what does the net look like? So and that I think goes hand in hand with faith and trust that um, it's okay to look at the, the dark and the light and for both to be seen as part of a whole. I don't think I answered your question. <laughs> no, that was good. That was actually very good. I think that kind of wrapped up our conversation rather perfectly. Yeah, it's been a it's been a a really really good one, and I'm I'm just happy to hear all the the great things that have happened. Um, I'm I'm really stoked that your daughter is getting the education that she needs, um, and then your other daughter is getting the education that she wants. Um, so there is some really great things happening in your lives, and and I'm just really fortunate to to know you too, and and to to have these kind of uh, in depth conversations. So so thank you so much. Yeah. Thank you. Thanks for having us on. It's always fun to see you guys and talk and I know we kind of, uh, message back and forth through, you know, social media, Instagram, but it's, it's always nice to see you guys and, um, hopefully you both can make it up to our shop in a, in a lower village. Yeah. To open it up and we'll see what happens. <laughs> uh. Yes. Go for it. I'm, I'm so psyched. I'm going to, as soon as I'm 
off the off the air with you guys. I'm going to be looking at my maps and seeing how many hours my trip will be. I'm, what do you think? Five hours from the Hudson Valley? I don't have a clue. Maybe Five hours. Yeah. And you can even take a train, Albert. Yeah, really? I think we could do. Yeah. Well, Ooh, I you love can trains. Go, yeah. You can train to, um, to um, Grand Central, then over to Penn Station, and then to Boston, North Station. And then on to Kenny Bunk. Like there's, you know, there, it, it's pretty, it's easier than you'd think to get up here. Oh, it sounds amazing. Well, just, it's going to be probably a couple of wintry, tough days. And then when the spring comes, you'll be in beautiful Maine. And hopefully the world will look a little different than than what we've been living through in, in the Omicron little surge that we're having. But, Omicron uh, Valley. The two. <laughs> the Omicron Valley. The two of you are. Um, just lovely people. I just never, you know, when, whenever I see your smiling faces together, I'm like, yes, for people who belong together. Aww. <laughs> I'm Thank sure you. like 90% of the time people will be like, <laughs> you should go to the shop with them one day and see the daggers they throw at each other when they're trying to sort through garbage. But that's just the reality well, they're, of they're life. They're very well hidden. <laughs> yeah. You're doing good. Oh, Next God time we'll have it. Yeah. Thank you so Thank much, you, you guys. Thank and you. God bless you guys, too. Right on. Well, hey, this has been another episode of the Veer, Vulnerabilis Veer podcast. I'm Adam Blinsky. I'm Albert Imperato. I'm Dan Ernest. And I'm Allison Ernest. Thank you for listening. <laughs>